Welcome back to Global Perspectives. And today we're talking through a much needed update on emerging market equities. In the next 15 minutes or so, we'll discuss the outlook on emerging markets in general, the role of innovation as a key force driving EM over the next decade, and what sustainable or ESG investing means in emerging markets compared to developed markets. To help me with that, we're joined by Daniel Grania and Matt Coley, both portfolio managers on Janice Henderson's Emerging Markets Equity Team. So Daniel, Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Yeah, really excited to do this. So Daniel, I'm going to start with the most loaded question, which is your general outlook on emerging market equities. There are so many negative headlines to grapple with, but emerging markets are ultimately where the majority of global growth is happening. So what's the balance here between optimism and pessimism in emerging markets? Sure. For a sustainable rally, the market needs to find a new equilibrium. Market needs some clarity on the terminus of U.S. interest rates and thus the dollar. Maybe not necessarily getting to that terminus, but just be able to feel and touch it. We need some clarity on the depth of the likely recession in the developed world. And we need some uh, sort of sense of what's going to happen in China in terms of policy pivot on property and COVID, for instance. So there are some legitimate questions. However, longer term, I would say there's some considerations. The rise of geopolitical considerations and the rise of populist pressures and DM has basically, they both have undermined the case for globalization. And when you want to export your way economic prosperity like Korea and Taiwan have done, this business model is going to be harder for other countries. And so active management has become even more important in choosing which countries will do well in this changed future, in this world of fragmenting and markets, and which ones are not well positioned. But what I would want to say is what really gets us excited about the future of EM equities is the rise of EM innovation. And this is the third pillar of growth. So another key trend that your team has talked about is the bipolar or the multipolar world that we're entering into as far as globalization or maybe the lack thereof in the post-COVID trend. So from an emerging markets perspective, Daniel, what would you say are those investment implications of that bipolar or multipolar world? It's going to be harder and harder to bring intellectual property across the dividing line, whether it's telecom infrastructure, IP from or intellectual property from Huawei into the West or semiconductor equipment from the West into China. Companies are increasingly going to have to choose which end market they will serve, reducing the end market opportunity. And we will also see the rise of Chinese national champions, which are going to be supported by government policy and aim to push out, displaced Western companies. Another sort of reality of this is that they're going to see more supply chain diversification. That's going to lead to flows, foreign direct investment flows into places like Vietnam, Indonesia, India, and Mexico, among others. So, for example, today only 5% of Apple's products are produced outside China, but that's likely to jump to 25% in the next few years. So one consequence of this diversification, though, I want to point out is it is inflationary because if the marginal investment dollar is no longer placed in the lowest cost manufacturer of goods and services, but in the second, third, or fourth best location, then that does have implications for the end consumer. So in short, the investment implications of a bipolar world means that a few EM countries will benefit from this nearshoring and friendshoring. And secondly, some innovative Chinese companies will have the domestic Chinese market largest themselves. So multinationals have to be careful in that world. So on the note of China, then more broadly speaking, even outside of just the bipolar, multipolar world, is how broadly are China's economic drivers changing? China's secret recipe, or maybe not so secret recipe, is to become the global workshop, joining WTO, providing a very attractive labor, great logistics, great infrastructure to then become the global manufacturing workshop. Along with that would drive urbanization, 
and create this virtuous cycle of being able to export your way to growth, but also being able to pay more wages, which allowed living standards to improve. China successfully moved hundreds of millions of people in a very short amount of time out of poverty, low income status, into considered an upper middle income country. A lot of fixed asset investments, uh, both in terms of residential property, as well as uh, building factories. And that, I guess, is where the Achilles heel resides. A lot of leverage was used to sort of turbocharge this growth. And so this is where we've reached the limits of what China can do with the old business model. Urbanization has largely played out. It's unlikely that China is going to continue gaining global market share manufacturing. And so China needs to evolve and change. And of course, they have to deal with the, the leverage issue. And so what is it that China needs to do? It needs to follow the path of Korea and Taiwan. It needs to innovate. In order to go break out of the middle income trap, it needs to penetrate innovation throughout the economy. It needs to sort of leverage off its very favorable ecosystem. Enormous number of STEM graduates, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, uh, enormous potential of bringing back Chinese scientists and Chinese entrepreneurs from the West. All of this and favorable government policies and policy on, on pushing uh, this evolution. All of this means that China can uh, be well positioned to make that move. We obviously have to pay very close attention to the role uh, the Chinese Communist Party will, will have in sort of helping and directing and involving the private sector. That's a legitimate question. Clearly, uh, Xi Jinping's thoughts that state-owned enterprises should play a very large role. And so there are legitimate question marks in his third term about the role of the private sector. But certainly China has all the ingredients to be able to drive innovation, a very successful private market industry, a very successful innovation, great number, great number of patents. Lots of the ingredient, key ingredients are there for China to evolve in the next stage of its growth. But we still have some legitimate question marks in terms of the role of government in that. Okay. And then on that note of innovation, let's just follow that thread and bring you into the conversation, Matt. So I know that innovation is one of the key themes that your team's focused on, maybe even the biggest theme. But so can introduce the innovation theme a bit and talk about how it's poised to become so important for emerging markets. Yeah, it's funny because you know EM really does get a bad rap because if you look over the last 10 years, it's been really, really hard to keep up with U.S equity returns. But it hasn't always been that way. If you look back a little bit further from 2000 to 2010, S&P returns were essentially flat, actually slightly negative, while EM actually returned about 160%. So EM hasn't always struggled like it has over the course of the last 10 years. But a lot of that just has to do with the strength of the US equity returns. And so if you look at what's driven U.S. equity returns over the last 10 years, a lot of it really has been innovation. I would characterize the biggest returns as coming from companies who were creating and leveraging IP, you know, Microsoft, Amazon, Netflix, NVIDIA. We've all seen stats about how 90% of the S&P 500 assets now are intangible assets. But I think in general, we could say that innovation has been a huge driver of those returns. And I think one of the critical building blocks has just been the expansion in access and use of information. That's not just data, but information more broadly. It's not just about the power of the internet, but I think that that's actually one of the key drivers behind it. So if we think back to 2000, one of the key reasons why things failed to play out as expected is that we simply just didn't have the infrastructure in place to execute on the dreams of the entrepreneurs from the late 90s. We're really 
10 years behind the developed world. Interestingly, if you look at the constituents of the EM index today and you plot it against US against internet penetration in 2010, we were only around 40% or so. You know, again, that's that's where the US was in 2000. Today, that's 76. Again, that's where the US was in in 2010. So we're really at the turning point here where we finally have the intellectual infrastructure in place for innovation. Then when you add on demographics, it's where that sheer numbers and compounding really comes in. We have a lower median age. So again, the world's largest digitally native population of people who are, you know, they're accustomed to new technology. But also U.S. internet penetration back then was only around 40%. It was AOL saying, you've got mail. But it wasn't until 2008 that U.S. internet penetration got closer to 75% that we had the introduction of the iPhone. Everyone got on Amazon. Salesforce.com started selling this thing called cloud software. And obviously, you know, the rest is history and we've seen what's happened. So if you kind of just then pivot over to EM, they're really educated. So India alone has four times more STEM students, science, technology, engineering, and math. China has has five times. If you put the rest of EM Asia together, you get another US. So you have the the digital and you know intellectual infrastructure there in place for that demographic advantage to compound. So what is that translating into? If you look at total R&D spend globally, around 80% or so comes from top 10 countries in the world. Five of those are actually in EM now, and three of the top six, so China, India, Korea. But within that though, DM actually only outspends emerging markets by about 20%, but we've actually been growing much, much faster. And in places like India, we still have substantial room to grow to even get close to global averages here. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that investment behind intellectual capital has historically been reserved only for developed markets, but we're really getting to a point where this is equalizing and it could really have profound shifts in where innovation comes from and what the drivers of asset class returns are. I think that's a great way to frame it up as far as EM being about a decade behind the US, according to those different metrics you're talking about. So then if you think about innovation and EM versus DM, I guess I'm thinking about rewinding the clock 12 years ago. And if I had a time machine on my investment account, you're looking at the big data, all the advertising revenue and the trillions of dollars that were made by those big tech names you talked about a little bit earlier. So then how is innovation in EM going to be different the next decade than it was in the last decade in DM? Is it the same kind of trajectory or does it look like a different focus to your team? Yes, I think that's a a great point. So not only will we see the same and similar trends as to what we saw in developed markets, but one of the key differences in emerging markets is just how inclusionary innovation can be. So Historically, existing institutions in EM, they really underserve the vast majority of the population. So if you just take a look at the access to healthcare, if you look at the places in the world today where you see the highest prevalence of catastrophic healthcare expenditure, these almost always sit in emerging or frontier markets. But things like telemedicine, e-pharmacy, those can dramatically increase consumers' access to basic healthcare needs and also drive positive health and economic benefits. One of my favorite stats is actually in Mexico, 60% of people, 6-0, are unbanked. So they are 
entirely outside of the formal financial sector. Why? Because banking incumbents, they're really only set up to cater to the top portion of the retail market. They charge high fees, high interest rates. They really have no understanding of credit underwriting to the majority of the population. So Mexico's financial inclusion is 20% below that of countries with similar economic conditions. What solves that? It's fintech, it's digital banking, it's new and innovative ways to provide services to the people who need it most. What I'm talking about here is, this is entirely new addressable markets. This isn't just about taking share of a finite pie, it's about growing that pie. It's about broadening the scope of who can participate in healthcare or the financial system and providing goods and services to those regions in really entirely new ways. I mean, most companies in emerging markets weren't set up to cater to anywhere close to the bottom of the pyramid, and in many cases, even the middle. But innovation is now unlocking that as a business potential, which is what we think is really exciting, especially because it's happening right now. So whether it's then fintech or healthcare or the local Amazons that you mentioned, as far as growing that pie, Matt, can you give us some company examples of where you're seeing this happening today? Yeah, that's a good idea. So let's just stick on Latin America there and focus on financial inclusion. So if we look at, at banks, what we were talking about before, um, there are really four things that a bank needs to compete on. It's the cost to acquire those new customers. And typically this is just opening new bank branches in let's call it rural Mexico. Two, it's the cost to service those customers. And that comes down to running those bank branches, what that costs. It's the cost of risk. And that, again, that's the ability to properly underwrite, credit underwrite consumers at various different parts of the financial pyramid. And lastly, it's the cost of funding that credit. Obviously, a bank takes deposits and it's their ability to substantially to lend that out at substantially higher rates. Historically, if you look in EM, there's a, a lot of survivorship bias given the crises in EM where the best banks were the ones who had the tightest credit underwriting standards and they had the biggest branch networks. What we're seeing today is companies that are, are, are kind of shifting the entire paradigm there and they're focusing on leveraging native technology stacks and behavioral data to beat incumbents across all four of those metrics. And so as legacy banks are straddled with what used to be their core advantage are now high cost legacy bank branches with data and information that's trapped across multiple siloed divisions. And if anyone's ever worked for a big company, you know exactly what we're talking about here. These digital banks are really enabling a broader access to financial services and doing so in a disciplined manner. I think I also mentioned healthcare earlier. And um, what we're really starting to see now is the prevalence of homegrown technologies that are, are bringing access to healthcare to, to more people. So. A good example is in China, colorectal cancer is it's one of the most prevalent forms of cancer. 300,000 people get diagnosed every year, but there's like 800 million people who are at risk. And so the worst part about this is that only 6% of them actually get diagnosed at stage one. Um, and why is that? Because historically, the only way to screen for it is an expensive and invasive colonoscopy, but only 30% of hospitals in China can actually even provide a colonoscopy. So today we're seeing companies bringing non-invasive solutions to the market. They're highly accurate. They cost $150. And what's incredibly exciting is that it's not just companies that are in phase one and phase two trials. These are companies that have completed phase three testing and are into commercial deployment. So that's what's today driving the inclusion that I've talked about earlier. And again, driving a whole new addressable market that really didn't exist before. All right. That's great. Thanks, Matt. And then another mega trend we need to hit on would be ESG, sustainable investing. And Daniel, maybe go back to you on this one. 
So how does ESG or sustainable investing fit into emerging markets? And I think continuing with the contrast, how would you contrast EM investing versus DM investing from a sustainable or ESG perspective? Of course, we call it GES in our emerging market team because we place governance first. You have to understand that the overwhelming majority of companies EM have a controlling shareholder. It's either a family or the state. There are very few companies that have a completely fragmented shareholder registry. So you really have to appreciate what the controlling shareholder wants to do, how they treat minority shareholders, related party transactions, all the kinds of corporate governance things. You have to accept that investing in emerging markets, that business practices, acceptable business practices are very different. But there's more than just the corporate governance, also the political governance. What kind of a political environment are these companies swimming in? And so you have to place governance first when investing in EM. Now, Matt talked about innovation in EM. What gets us so excited about this new pillar is that it solves so many of the EM old inequities in financial services, healthcare, the consumer experience. So innovation is a way of solving the E and the S problems in emerging markets. So investing in, in ESG is not just about looking for companies that have independent board of directors, not just about those companies that are making a difference in a developed market sense. In, in EM, you have to respect and understand that the rules of the road are different, therefore governance first, but also that these companies really do solve the E and the S problems in EM and therefore makes EM very much a candidate for ESG investing. Okay, great. That wraps it up. A big thanks to Daniel and Matt for the update. And thanks to our listeners for joining. If you haven't already, you can find more Global Perspectives on Spotify or iTunes or wherever else you listen. And of course, check out the Insights section of the Janice Henderson website for more of our views. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. social and governance, ESG, factors are integrated into the investment process by focusing on those ESG factors considered most likely to have a material impact on the financial performance of the issuers. ESG factors are one of many considerations in the investment decision-making process and may not be determinative in deciding to include or exclude an investment. Foreign securities are subject to additional risks including currency fluctuations, political and economic uncertainty, increased volatility, lower liquidity and differing financial and information reporting standards, all of which are magnified in emerging markets. DM refers to, developed markets. WTO refers to, world trade organizations. The views presented are as of the date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, but not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janice Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency.
Genus Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited, registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited, registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopthake, London EC 2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Janice Henderson Investors Europe SA. Registration number B22848, at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janice Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janice Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, company registration number 199700782N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E, Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore. Limited only to qualified professional investors, as defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. G. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan. Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instrument business. H. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia. Limited, ABN 47124279518 and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531, AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43164177244, AFSL 444268, I, the Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated materials nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions and at resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiry should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients as defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson, Knowledge Labs, and Knowledge Shared, are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C01234716201325TL